2: A lot of times people want to be like why does the computer do this and it's like why does your cat do that you can't know some things but knowing how to refer people knowing how to say no in a way that isn't just kind of a crappy i can't be bothered is its own skill
1: welcome back to working i'm your host isaac butler
0: and i'm your other host june thomas
1: June, this is like our fifth recording session in seven days, so I almost feel like we're back in an office together or something.
0: Isn't it blissful? If only there were free snacks and a freshly changed Wi-Fi password that we had to hunt down.
1: Yes, that's true, June. Even longtime Slate podcast heads might not know that Shasha Leonar, most famous for reading emails uh, on mom and dad are fighting, who's also the head of IT at Slate, used to change the password every month to something new. And every time it was delightful and whimsical and would put a smile on your face and make you happy for the first of the month. Yeah. Uh, But enough about that. Whose voice did we hear at the top of this week's episode?
0: So that was Jessamine West. She is a librarian and a rural tech evangelist And I'd never spoken with her before this interview, but I feel like I know her because I've been reading her Twitter feed and a blog that she keeps about her reading for many, many years.
1: You know, I think this might be our first librarian guest, which I'm excited by because my younger brother is a librarian. Many of my friends are librarians and I'm happy to see them represented here. But So what did you all talk about for Slate Plus today? So we spoke about
0: Wikipedia. Jessamine spent 10 years on the Wikimedia Foundation advisory board, and she still spends a lot of time creating and improving Wikipedia entries. And I wanted to know why she does that and how and why she thinks Wikipedia improves people's access to information, which ultimately is her
1: big passion. Well, that sounds delightful. And I don't know about you, but Mm. I could use all the delight I can (laughs) get, which is why... I subscribe to Slate Plus. I did it even before I had a podcast for Slate, and let me tell you, it's only gotten more worth it. You get full access behind the paywall, bonus segments on shows like this one, exclusive episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you get to support everything we do right here on Working. Sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. And now, for some more delight, let's listen in on June's conversation with rural librarian Jessamine West.
0: Jessamine West, thank you for coming on working. I usually begin these interviews by asking my guest to describe what they do, but you have Such a fantastic Twitter bio. I wonder if you could sort of explicate it if I read it aloud. This is the first section. Rural tech geek, researcher, proud member of the librarian resistance, collector of mosses, enjoyer of postcards, and then you
2: provide your PO box and pronouns. So what does all that mean? I sort of grew up in a time where... It was important to make your resume interesting if you wanted to get a job. And (laughs) over time, I just, you know, and Twitter doesn't give you a lot of space. And so I wanted to sort of synthesize it down to both the things that were true and the things that were interesting. So (laughs) I live in rural Vermont. I work with computers, which (laughs) is more interesting and unusual in rural Vermont than it might be other places. Uh, I like to look things up, and so often I'll help people do that, and that's why I put that there. I need an offline hobby, and my offline hobby is building moss terrariums a lot of times. So I'll go out in the woods and get moss and come back here and stick it in a jar, basically. Uh, I like the mail, so I enjoy when people send me stuff in the mail, and I enjoy sending things in the mail – And uh, the librarian resistance is a thing that kind of started up under the previous administration and um, is still necessary, regrettably, in this administration. And I think it's important for people to know in a general sense that librarians are willing to help you with your problems, even if the government thinks you don't deserve help with those problems. And that's a signaling way to let people know that uh, it's a thing that we as librarians tend to value.
0: I was really struck that you began the list with Rural Tech Geek. Um, We've never spoken before, but I've been following you on Twitter and reading your book reviews for years. And I identify you first and foremost as a librarian. So... I was just curious that librarian wasn't just the first word that you said.
2: For me, it's part of kind of what it signals, right? I think if the first thing I said was that I was a librarian, you might have certain things you thought about me. Uh, You'd probably get my hairstyle right and uh, (laughs) you'd probably get the kind of sweater I'm wearing right. But you might not sort of fully understand what my thing is whereas you know the fact that I live someplace rural and I grew up someplace rural and except for a brief foray into Seattle I've lived in rural locations and that's a sort of a central part of my identity Mm. and that and the intersection of that and technology is more unusual than you might think yeah
0: okay so let's talk about what that work is um as I said, keen follower on Twitter. And my favorite recurring feature, if you can call that something about someone's life, is drop-in time. Can you explain for people who don't yet follow you what that is and and what you do there?
2: Sure. Uh, I've lived in Vermont since the late 90s, and I originally thought I wanted to live in Vermont because I wanted to be like a solo librarian. You know, I wanted to work at a tiny library where I was the person and I would help people with that. And then I moved to Vermont and met many of those people and realized they do a lot of things that I don't do and and can't do. I'm not good at. Like what? I'm not great with kids. Mm-hmm. Like I don't mm-hmm. have any and... I enjoy them, but I am not great with figuring out what they want to see in a puppet show, for example. (laughs) Um, Programming, doing events, uh, I'm not great at because I know what I like, but I'm not always as great at understanding what other people will like. Okay. And running a building is Mm -hmm. challenging. Uh, I'm not great at running my own building, so I don't know if I'd want to take another building. Yeah. But, you know, my strengths, which were kind of doing computers, making computer stuff very clear and working with people, even people who are very bad at computers, if if I'm being honest without being judgmental, was my special skill. And Mm. so uh, after some work doing outreach work in libraries, which I very much enjoyed, and, and a lot of special projects kind of stuff, I wound up with a job locally doing sort of local rural library assistance, kind of. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer through a local Mm. tech ed school. And one of the things that we realized was we had a bunch of basic technology classes in the adult education program. And we would have people showing up to a basic technology class, like Microsoft Word, what is it, kind of thing. And people wouldn't even have the skills that they would need To be able to take that class, they couldn't use Mm. a mouse, they didn't know what a right click was, they didn't know what a menu was, and no big deal, right? You know what you know when you know it. Mm -hmm. But we found that we needed a more remedial way to get people ready for those classes. And Mm -hmm. what that turned into was what we call drop in time, where it would basically be me hanging out in a room at the tech center, couple hours a week. I mean, at first it was probably four hours a week. It was big. And, 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 you know, it's fluctuated over the last 15 years and people could just come in with their questions and it wasn't a class. And part of the deal was always, there were going to be other people there. So you had to share and we would try and help you with whatever your thing was. And so, you know, that could be, learning to use a mouse or figuring out how to type a resume or what people think of as computer skills. But sometimes it was just like, I need to set up a dating profile and I don't understand what these words mean in Mm. this app,
3: Mm. or
2: I'm trying to get this email sent and I don't know why it isn't sending or any number of things. And I've been doing that in some variation through the schools, through the libraries, through my own self-funding depending on how that worked since 2005 and it's my joy, you know. Wow. It is it is where I am my happiest. Even though it is also deeply frustrating both yes. just because sometimes the problems are hard, but also it just makes me mad at how technology could have been better and isn't. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: You know, one of the things that we often discuss on working is conflict and like how people resolve disagreements when they're collaborating together. Now, that's one thing if you're talking about, you know, people in a band or, you know, a theatre director and a writer. But in your case, you know, I wonder what happens when you're unable to help someone. Like what happens when you're stumped?
2: I should be clear. I am never stumped. (laughs) <laughs> but I can sometimes get to the end of a road <laughs> yeah. and, and tell people, this you can't do this. I mean, for instance, I had drop-in time yesterday, <laughs> and there is a woman who has a blog that she did, and she's got 150 postings, and it's on Wix, right, which is a platform that you oh. can build stuff on. Mm-hmm. She now wants to get off that platform and onto her own WordPress blog. Simple, right? Computers. <laughs> it's just data, Right. No, which yeah. doesn't have an exporting feature. And so there's two answers to this woman's problem, right? The one answer is there's no built-in tool where you can do this yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a hard message. Yeah. But then the second message is, but with heroics, a person... Could do this. Now, that person's probably not going to be me because I'm a shared resource and I tend not to do heroics if it's not an emergency. But realistically, she could pay a guy or Mm. a lady or Mm. a kid, most likely, and actually solve that problem. And so the biggest thing I found with having to have the answer be no, right, Mm. Mm. is explaining why the answer is no. And what the texture of that no is, Hmm. right? Because with computers, it's so rare that something just can't be done. But it is often the case that it is not worth doing it. And... Mm -hmm. People have to make those individual calculuses for themselves. You know, I had somebody once who had like an old cell phone and it had a voicemail and he couldn't get it and it was the voice of his dead sister and he wanted it to be on his computer, right? That's a big deal and it might be worth some money or some time. And I'll be honest, I went a little extra mile for that guy because with this woman with the blog... She could do the copying and pasting, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and yeah. and the other thing is I wind up with a lot of kind of mantras, you know, where I tell people I can't tell you or explain what happened before I showed up on the scene. You know, a lot of times people want to be like, why does the computer do this? And it's like, why does your cat do that? You can't know <laughs> some things. You just yeah. can't. You can't yeah. know. But yeah. like friendly, supportive. But sometimes people's problems with computers aren't technological. They're emotional. Yes. And, and, and that's not my, my zone, right? That's not my lane. But knowing how to refer people, knowing how to support people, knowing how to say no in a way that isn't just kind of a crappy, I can't be bothered, yeah, yeah. is its own skill. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, when I go to my local library, I, you know, I don't always interact with librarians anymore or or not kind of directly because if I'm just going to borrow or return books, you know, there's a lot of self-service options now. But so when I'm in the library, if I do have to talk to someone and I'm in line, I hear a lot of the other patrons questions. And I admit sometimes they're my questions, too. And they're about technology. You know, they're very rarely about a book or about, you know, getting access to you know, a journal or something. That's a little bit pointy headed, but it's about more things like how to print or how to access a database that it says is I can get on the library from the library, but I can't figure it out. Like, and I sometimes get a little bit mad on the librarian's behalf. You know, they went to library school, not help desk school. Like, how do you feel about this particular evolution of the librarian's
2: role? I mean, in my dream world, library school would partly be help desk school and those Mm. would be professional jobs like help desk jobs are professional jobs that you can get paid for and work your way up a food chain of doing better with increasing responsibility. But instead, there's this kind of snotty attitude among, I find, technology workers That this is self-serve. If you can't self-serve, you're an idiot. And we don't provide support because our tech is so great that you don't need it. And it's free, so you don't get support anyhow. Uh, Like Mm -hmm. I feel like over the last two decades, maybe we have been as technology consumers kind of groomed into this position where we believe if we can't use it, it's our fault. To which my response is, how dare you? You know, that is shocking. And Mm -hmm. sometimes this is a honest, like – conflict where oh that's supposed to work that way and we didn't know it did and so let us the technology builders fix that sometimes it's hey you get what you pay for this is free or cheap or whatever and sometimes it's a clash right like you you mentioned printing right so you've got a printer and the printer does something normal for printing if you have a normal situation right, right. Yeah. But what if you've got this big network situation, you want people to print wirelessly, oh, but the wireless network's on the other side of the firewall, yada, 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 yada. And mm. whose fault is that? The firewall's mm. fault? The printer's fault? The person with the iPad's fault? Like, and determining blame actually doesn't help get that document printed. Right. But it can help troubleshoot for the next time you have to work on that issue. And so I think part of it for me is learning how to be able to look at this, understand kind of what's going on. Like I said before, the texture of what is happening, how to address the short-term problem, how do we fix this, but also how to address the long-term problem. Why is this so freaking broken? And one of the reasons I do drop-in-time tweets on Twitter, which, you know, five people in my town are on, really, so nobody here reads those. That's not for my neighbors, in fact, sometimes I talk about my neighbors, let's be honest, <laughs> and um, is because the people who build technology are on Twitter Yeah, in general. And yeah. so sometimes they can see that and be like, oh, my God, it would never have occurred to me that something, 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 because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like maybe Wix doesn't export blog posts as a business strategy, and that's fine. I mean, you can make whatever dumb decisions you want. And again, it's free. Yeah. But maybe it encourages somebody else to build a Wix exporting tool because there is an RSS feed underneath there. You could do that. This is Mm. a thing that people could build. And maybe that helps make the world a little bit more technologically just for the people who need it and can't build those tools themselves.
1: We'll be back with more of June's interview with Jessamyn West after this. Hey, Slate listeners, it is Isaac Butler here. I just wanted to say real quick that if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment and subscribe. Uh, just click that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast, and that way you'll never miss an episode of Working. Uh, also, you might have noticed we have a new bi-weekly bonus show called Working Overtime, where we are heavily featuring emails and voicemails correspondence ideas and requests for advice from our listeners if you would like to be part of our show please email us at working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK we've really loved the emails and voicemails we've gotten so far we're taking lots of people's requests and putting them to work at the show and so we look forward to hearing from you all right back to the show
0: So, you seem to do a million things, and you talked about doing drop in hours at the tech center. How much of your time is spent in a physical library these
2: days? Two and a half hours a week. Whoa. Probably, probably. I mean, the joke is drop in time originally was just flat out through the tech center. Technical education, which is like, you know, 11th and 12th grades for kids who are learning more trade type jobs and mm-hmm. less go to college type jobs, although mm-hmm. that's rude and no longer true. But that's how mm-hmm. I think people can be like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, And they supported me because it was part of educating the workforce, right? Time passes, there's no longer an adult education program in my tech ed program. I had to scramble for money, I wrote a bunch of grants, the library kept sending people there. And I was the sub at the library, right? I get paid as a library assistant, uh, roughly what I would make at McDonald's to help people with this kind of stuff. And over time, and then really when COVID hit, they were like, people can't get on Zoom. And it was the same thing, right? We can't have a Zoom program if people can't get on Zoom to see it. And so they were like, why don't you bring your drop-in time skills to the library that already employs you. And, you know, we will find some regular hours for you. And during COVID, when the library wasn't open, my library was closed significantly more than other libraries because of reasons. (laughs) I would just do email tech support, or I would meet somebody in my driveway and pick up a laptop that wasn't working, you know, and I would leave it in my driveway and then there'd be a bag of cookies there when <laughs> I went back outside again. Like like you make it work, right? People figure it out. And so now I do a regular drop in time at the library weekly, but only two or three hours. I probably do twice that, maybe a little bit more over email or Zoom or in person. Um, now that COVID's a little less of a thing where I am now, I can do a little bit of sort of in-person stuff, if people are willing to mask up and be reasonable. But yeah, it's a small part of all the hours that make up my day. Some of what I do is like this, talk to other people about what I do. Some of what I do is public speaking about digital divide issues and rural technology issues. Because the larger issue is, you know, people in like big cities On lots of social media, extremely online, people are used to not only telling their stories, but have other people hear their stories. And people from marginalized groups, whether that's, you know, broke, offline, historically disadvantaged populations, people with disabilities, whatever – don't get their stories told as much, yep. right? Yep. They, they become special interest stories. They're not mainstream stories. And so part of, you know, what I like to do is be like, well, let's talk about digitally divided people who can't export blog posts from Wix. Yep. You yep. know, what, yep. what's that about? And what do you need to do as technologists to make the world a more humane place for people who struggle?
0: Yeah, no, truly. I've noticed that, A lot of librarians are a little bit in love with their profession in a way that doesn't seem to get diminished from actually working in libraries. And I think maybe more than other career paths, you know, usually in most jobs, I think people sour or get kind of jaded after a while. First of all, am I wrong about that in your experience? And and it sounds like your commitment to
2: libraries and the services they provide is rock solid, It's a thing we talk about in the profession a lot. We call it Mm. vocational awe, which was a a term that uh, Fabaz Ettar, who's a writer on this topic, talked about. And it's kind of a good news, bad news thing, right? It's really good to love your job, but it's bad if you love your job and then that becomes an excuse for not getting paid enough or not getting treated well at work, Mm. right? Mm. And I've been really lucky that I do a lot of kind of independent consulting. And so my entire identity isn't the time I spend inside the building. But I'll be honest, it's challenging sometimes. You know, it's both challenging because I often don't find simpatico people within my profession locally who share my technology love, who share my kind of to the vanguard, like, you know, political backstory but it, it is also a little hard because if librarianship turned on me <laughs> which you know you have to kind of think about you'd want to still have something else like I worked in technology directly you know help desky kind of stuff right out of library school and it was good in some ways and bad in some ways but ultimately it wasn't for me it was a very male profession I didn't I didn't feel like I had a role there. Uh, the people there didn't read books like I did. I mean, yeah. and it and it yeah. sounds crappy. Like, don't get me wrong. Some of my favorite friends are technologists. But the culture as an overarching culture was different from the culture I wanted to be a part of. Yeah,
0: yeah totally. You seem to do a lot of very creative things to encourage library use. Um, I saw that you made it possible to sponsor a race car that I think had a message on it that said use your library or something like that I've got a need to read go to the library (laughs) I've got a need to read go to the library okay that's great (laughs) so how did that particular sponsorship come about and also why do you do that I mean don't people just know what libraries are and what they're for you know what's your thinking there
2: a couple things I guess uh the race car thing in specific is basically because there's a guy in my town, and my town's got 4,500 people, um, and he drives race cars. Just like not like he's not a NASCAR guy. At least I don't think I don't even exactly know what NASCAR <laughs> is. I'll be honest. Um, but but it's popular around here, and I know that. And <laughs> and part of it is we ignore that at at, at our peril. Mm-hmm. If you're the public's library, you should theoretically be for all the public. But realistically, there's certain kinds of people you're a lot more likely to see in the library and other kinds that you aren't. So everybody Mm -hmm. probably knows that the library is a thing, but they don't necessarily know it's for them. Like, hey, maybe you can get like wild game hunting magazines at your library. One of the other libraries I work at has many, um, you know, hunting and fishing subscriptions. And like those cost real money. And maybe you just want to read them And then put them back, you know, hey, your library can do that for you. And so there's this guy in my town, he runs the water department, he posts a thing on our little neighborhood mailing list, asking for sponsorship for himself and his daughter, who. Is I believe in high school, maybe just getting out of high school, and she's a race car driver. And I think this is stock cars, like like uh-huh. you know, like a car that's kind of an off the shelf. I should not talk about this. I don't know anything about <laughs> well and you, cars. I,
0: I'm, and I know nothing. I know nothing about cars. So but they race
2: are. at Thunder yeah. Road, which is uh-huh. a you know a track that's not that far from here. And he was looking for sponsorship. And I emailed him and was like, "How much?" And he told me, and it was shockingly cheap compared to just everything in the world. Like it's a joke that I kind of live in 1950 here in Vermont (laughs) in good ways and bad ways. And so he and I connected and that was last year. And then he contacted me this year and I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm totally doing that. And on Twitter, I was like, who wants to chip in for the race car? And people donated. They donated so much money that I also got her a gift certificate at the local... (laughs) you know, chefs like farm stand because like people love that idea. And so partly it's an internet thing, right? Internet people like to see that because it makes them happy. But partly it's a real thing, right? Because, you know, that young woman and her dad and their friends now feel that the library knows they exist, thinks that what they do is cool, acknowledges that they're part of our community. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times we can just sit in our building, wait for people to come in, and if they don't come in, be like, mm-hmm, "Yeah, I guess they didn't want to come in. It's their problem. And it isn't their problem. So you mentioned it a little bit earlier,
0: but you know, pretty much every workplace was affected by the COVID pandemic. But libraries are physical spaces that have traditionally at least relied on face-to-face human connections. Um, you know, how did the way that library works change? And do you think that any of the sort of solutions they've found will stay in place after the pandemic ends?
2: I was just literally talking about this earlier today, because there's a Vermont working group on the status of libraries in Vermont, and they're collecting testimony and kind of learning about how libraries deal with some of this stuff. And You know, one of the things that we found, and this is true with digitally divided stuff generally, we have a lot of mailing lists and different ways that librarians can share information, but not all the libraries are on those mailing lists. And so the ones that were connected got better connected and had better information and were better prepared and had more ideas. And the ones that weren't connected remained kind of isolated and You know, my particular library, you know, did a ton of curbside, brisk business, that was cool. But they didn't do some things that like, and whatever, everybody's like backseat driver with this kind of stuff. But they didn't do this kind of stuff that like, for me, being a very tech forward person. Would have done like we saw libraries in other states like they had a Zoom room and they would share it. Do you need a Zoom room? You can sign up for our Zoom room for some time and then you'll have it. You know they would do um, you know outreach. You could write letters to pets at the library and they would write back because remember a lot of us were bored and <laughs> frightened. Right. You know at the beginning and having a library that recognized those needs and not just your information needs, was huge. But like when Omicron started ramping up again at the end of 2021, my library closed the doors again. And they were just like, nope, ventilation, we can't do it. And I did not agree with that decision because I felt like people were exhausted and I felt like people needed a library. They needed a place to go inside. You know, if you're in a situation at home that's not stable. We have a lot of kids who come to the library after school and kind of stay there until the safe parent gets home. Like, that's crappy when you tell them you're not going to be open. And they opened again in April. Like, just, I have concerns. But like, you know, I worked through channels and talked to the people on my board and tried to get other people on the board to help sort of make that work. And I think for some people, maybe curbside solves a problem for them in in various ways, right? Obviously, COVID's not over, but also maybe it's easier for you to just drive up and have something dropped off in your car. And like the hugest thing at my library, curbside printing. Printing sucks. It always sucks. And being able to just have an email address, you can email a document. Not the easiest thing for everybody, but I think it's a thing a lot of people can do. And then just going and picking up your document and throwing some money in a box, awesome, right? And then you don't have to use a public access computer. Great. And then, you know, you do have to trust the librarian, like to look at your stuff, which you did kind of anyhow, let's be honest. And so I think looking at those kinds of things and seeing like what was good, like book groups, Zoom book groups. I have a friend who's deaf, Book groups have always been kind of difficult for her. She goes to Zoom book groups, turn the captions on, which uh, my library didn't know how to do for the first year of COVID and Mm. didn't Mm. ask. I'm not sure why. And now she can interact with her book club safe at home and read along. It's even easier than being in person, especially with masks on. I think a lot of these things... The accessibility thing, you ask any person, well, not almost any person, but many people who are disabled and like they got more access in many cases, access that they've been clamoring for for decades. And that's crappy that it took everybody becoming temporarily, you know, incapacitated in a way for this to happen. But it did mean I think more people became aware of accessibility issues and hopefully some of that stuff is going to stick. Right. I don't ever want to go to a Zoom program where I can't turn on captions again and I shouldn't have to. But again, it's a person by person situation and solution there. Yeah.
0: Um, I have to tell you, just before we got on this call, <laughs> I was trying to figure out if I could print something at the library because uh, I'm going to miss the, the copy shop's hours. And so even though I'm, you know, I would be happy to pay. I don't know. Like, well, can I do it at the library? You know, so, like, that's just a thing that a lot of people need is a a real – because printers just suck.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, I've got a printer that works okay, but, like, even I use the color printer at the library occasionally – and in my dream utopia, right, like I've always been a bit of a collectivist kind of anarchist to begin with. <laughs> why is everybody buying a printer? Yes. It's so stupid. Yeah. Like, yeah. why don't we buy one or two good printers, share them collectively and share the costs associated with it? And that's really what's happening when the library buys your a printer presuming then there's not a staff person standing in the way of you using it or otherwise problematizing it because you know I'd be the last person to be like oh yeah all libraries are amazing and if you don't think so it's you who are the problem some libraries aren't great with this did it turn out that you could print your thing at the library I
0: actually only thought of it just before we um, (laughs) came here so I don't know yet but I'll let you know (laughs) Tessman West, this has been really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank
2: you for letting me talk about what I love.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at progressive.com to try the name your price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: June. I just loved your conversation with Jasmine West. And I think even though her profession isn't a quote unquote artistic one, it's still chock full of useful, creative advice. So I want to spend a bit of our time now highlighting it. And the first big one for me was know who you are and what you are good at. Jasmine knows she's not good with kids. She doesn't love planning events. She's not really hepped up to run a building, but she is great with and knowledgeable about technology. And she's exceptionally talented at teaching people how to use it. And so she's really focused in on that in her job. But you know me, I'm going to complicate everything. So (laughs) I wonder how do you figure out when you need to work on expanding your repertoire or toolbox or what have you, and when you need to go deeper on what you already know and are good at?
0: Oh, Isaac, this is something that I think about a lot. And one of the things that I'm bad at is delegating, which means that I tend to hold on to tasks that I really should hand off. And I also will take a long time struggling to accomplish tasks that someone else could do pretty easily and definitely quicker. But I also hate giving up too soon because it feels cowardly or lazy or Mm. some other label I don't want to own. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. So I'm always trying to analyze my own resistance to learning new things or doing things I don't enjoy to figure out if it's just that I haven't gotten into a groove yet or is it something that I really should try harder with. I mean, we often resist learning new skills because we don't like feeling like beginners at something, especially if we fancy ourselves experts in other areas. Let me give you one very silly example. Back in the days of working in offices, there was a meeting for podcast producers that I quote unquote owned. And even before the pandemic, we had producers in different cities. So this was a Zoom meeting. And now, of course, we all know how to do a Zoom meeting, but do we all know how to set up a Zoom meeting in a conference room where there'd be a lot of people sitting around a table and where you wanted to have the image on the big screen or for everyone to hear and be heard? Well, I never really got it down, but I also couldn't stand to be the kind of person who couldn't figure out the technology and especially like as a woman who was a good deal older than everybody else in the meeting. So on one level, it was Completely excruciating every single week. There was a different (laughs) issue, but I also could not bear to give it up. I probably should have, but I just couldn't.
1: That's interesting because there's like two different kinds of potential embarrassment there to avoid, right? One is just admitting you can't do it, but then the other is trying every week to do it and being embarrassed at your inability to do it.
0: You know, but it became a really good bit. That's my excuse anyway. Yeah.
1: I got it. I got it. You know, another really useful thing she talked about was the value of the word no. I feel like in both creative and corporate cultures, we are just too afraid of the word no. And I think Mm. it has a lot of value. You know, we like to talk about getting to yes or saying yes and to develop ideas, but actually getting to know is extremely important. It helps you focus in on what your project is. It helps you refine your idea. And let's be honest, you shouldn't be saying yes all the time. (laughs) And this interview raised for me another important point. You know, thanks to the improv comedy world, we have this kind of binary between yes and, which means building off of someone's suggestion, and no but, which of course means negating it and not leaving the improv exercise or the business meeting or whatever anywhere to go. But like all binaries, this is actually a false one. There is such a thing as no and, which is a no that then opens another door. No, you cannot do this particular thing in this particular way. You cannot click a button and have all of your blog entries exported from your Wix website. But there might be other ways to get what you want if you're willing to spend the resources. What did you make of that?
0: Yeah, I think that was super smart. And I think it's a really big part of the service element that Jessamine brings to her work. Um, You know, a company, especially a tech company, can say, oh, sorry, you can't do that with our software or that process isn't supported. And, you know, we just accept it, which I don't know how we got to that point. But anyway, but most technological challenges and other kinds of challenges, but we're talking about technology right now they actually do have a solution. It might be more complicated and probably more expensive than people would like. And it definitely requires a bit more finagling. Uh, But mostly it requires a different mindset. And if you embrace that, I think no but, which I actually do think is a real thing, can be like really generative. It can just Mm. help you come up with Wacky ways of doing things.
1: <laughs> another thing uh, that she talked about is that part of what helps her keep her focused in her job and on her job is mantras, which is another way of saying scripts. You know, it helps reduce your cognitive load if you're not coming up with original ways to say the same things over and over and over again. So like when Gabe Roth Chow and I were working on lend Me Your Ears, one of our mantras that came up a lot is we are struggling with this because it's hard. (laughs) You know, it was just a reminder that we're not uniquely bad at making a podcast. This podcast we're trying to make is difficult. And so we're going to wrestle with it a lot. And, you know, I think this whole thing is true. Even if the person you're talking to with this script is yourself, (laughs) June, you and I spend most of our days writing, which is a kind of conversation with yourself. Are there mantras that you've been developing that you use in your work?
0: Uh, Great question. Before I answer it, I want to mention that Jessamine has several of these mantras, I guess, that she re-ups on a regular basis. One of my favorites is her Friday afternoon Twitter reminder to not clear out your own inbox at the expense of someone else's, or as she puts it, schedule it for later, help other people with their work-life boundaries.
1: A friend of mine has as her email signature on her work email that um, you should reply to her email during your own work hours it says something like my uh daily schedule is not the same as yours and just because you might be getting this at night doesn't mean you have to answer it tonight or something like that which i think is uh, really wonderful and generous
0: yes i've seen similar uh signatures and it is amazing how much of an impact that can have it certainly made me think oh okay yeah good point (laughs) yeah so one thing that i have been struggling with it's been coming up a lot so in fact so frequently that I know I need to figure out a script for it is when a research rabbit hole is really fun and it gives me like an intellectual buzz but I also know that it's almost certainly not the right use of my time at least not now you know maybe later in the process when I've got a first draft of everything sure enjoy yourself knock yourself out but I've been trying to develop some kind of test, like something to help me determine, do you have to do this now? And, you know, sometimes the answer might be yes, because Mm. if I'm in the thick of a topic and I know the resources and the sources and they still remember me, well, that's maybe a time to do it. But it isn't always. Has anything like that come up for you?
1: Oh, yeah. All the time. I mean, I think anytime you're doing research, it's going to inspire other things that you could possibly research. You know, you'll yes. look at the end notes and be like, oh, maybe I should read that book. And then you yes. actually look up the book and it's 900 pages long. Yes. You're like, Never mind. Um, you know, and so to me, that's why whenever I'm doing research, I actually always keep a, a notebook or a yellow legal pad or, you know, something devoted to the project next to me. And then I mm-hmm. just jot down a note like, oh, think about this. And then mm-hmm. it's just gone from my brain and I don't have to think about it anymore. And I can go back to reading. That's that's how I personally handle that. Yeah. But yeah, I find these things really helpful, you know. Yeah, is is this the best use of your time? It's a great mantra or, you know, um just reminding yourself of where you are in the process, you know, that that it might be confusing because it's early days and you don't know what the whole story is yet or um just get your work for today done. Um, there's one that came from one of the subjects in the book, The Method, that I think about all the time, which is the purpose of today's rehearsal, or I guess we could say today's creative work. The purpose of today's creative work is to prepare for tomorrow's creative work. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you don't have to actually worry about completing anything that day. You're just trying to move it along enough that like, as you go to sleep, your brain's going to do a lot of work and then get you ready for the next day. And I find that is a really helpful way to be generous with yourself. Because when you're in a long-term project, no one day's work feels like you've done enough.
0: Right. And you know, sometimes too, the world will come and say, you know what? Yeah, you should. So I really have been thinking about this, like, this is too much detail. This might be a footnote. That footnote might get cut. Don't waste your time on this. And then today I was in one of those, like, really basically study sessions. And I came across a fact That actually was, you know, I had written in in a a line like, you know, this thing existed. I never found any evidence of this being used against a lesbian bar. And then this exact legal, you know, loophole thing showed up in like some random Mm -hmm. piece in a feminist newspaper in 1982 that I knew I was going into much too much, you know, time suck. To, to be looking at but it was absolutely right on point and you can't help thinking the universe is trying to tell me no June, go down the rabbit hole, it's fun down the rabbit hole
1: I will admit I do worry a little bit because you are so good at staying on task and so good at organizing <laughs> and so good at your, you know, productivity schedules that you might not allow yeah. yourself to do that enough. I, I'm yeah. gonna be I'm gonna be honest because I actually think part of working on something the size of a book or a documentary film or or whatever is actually you've got to pursue a lot of those things and you've got to just be willing to get lost a little bit because you're gonna find something that's that's really interesting. But the other problem is, is that, you know, like with the method, the subject that you're talking about. About is an infinite one. You could spend yes. the entire rest of your life researching this book, right, and so not, you got to find the balance between those two things. Right, right. Um, Another way to balance things. Uh, ooh, <laughs> that was a good segue, wasn't it? Another way to balance things that came up in this interview was uh, Jessamine's discussion of the concept of vocational awe which is uh you know a concept I know a lot about but I had never heard that term and I'm gonna use it from now on it's something we talk about in the arts all the time which is you know that you are so in love with your job that that creates a certain level of fulfillment beyond the ways that it contributes to your life like you know money or prestige <laughs> or whatever mm-hmm. most of us take a pay cut to work in the arts or in media right now frankly you yeah. can make more money doing almost anything Anything other than working in the nonprofit American theater, for example. And uh, yeah, we do this because the work is personally fulfilling. We believe in it. We think we are contributing to the greater culture at large. It's meaningful to us. But holy shit, does vocational awe open the door to exploitation and abuse? I think it's not as bad in the librarian world because the supply of labor doesn't so vastly outstrip demand like it does for actors or freelance writers or whatever. But still, it's a problem.
0: Yeah, it's a problem and it's an amazing concept. And obviously, as you mentioned, it's definitely also true of journalism. You know, people who are able to think up story ideas on a regular basis, perhaps a daily basis, research them quickly and turn what they find into a compelling story. Those people have gifts that would almost certainly earn them a lot more money in just about any other field. And yet... There's a romance to the profession that sucks people in, me most definitely included. You know, we're adults and we don't always have to do the sensible thing, the rational thing. But I have very often felt bad about this at events where, you know, there are people who are really trying to break in and you can kind of see it in the way they hold their mic up to someone's mouth or they ask if things are on the record that like, well, we're just actually having coffee, but sure, it's on the record. Yeah. um, You know that they're living out a fantasy as much as they're doing a job. And, you know, again, that's fine. Work should be exciting. But those same people are often struggling really hard economically. And I wish that they could take that zeal and direct it into something that would put, you know, a bit more money
1: in the bank. Yeah, it's like how we talk about the exposure dollars, right? Oh, you know, oh I'm being yes. paid an exposure. That will really help me buy my... Uh... Cabbage for dinner tonight yeah, exactly. or you know, whatever it is. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's such a tricky thing because like I'm glad that I work in a profession that I find so meaningful. Yes. Um, you know, but the truth of the matter, A, that's made somewhat easier because, you know, like my wife has a good job and things mm-hmm. like that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, B, the truth of the matter is, is that often the people were paying less or the fields were paying less are also treated with less respect. Yes. And that's the difficult thing is like how do you also create uh, which in my experience at Slate, Slate's done a very good job of. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, how yeah. do you also create a working environment that is fun and positive and respectful because no one's making a lot of money and we're all doing this in part out of love. That's that's a, yeah. that's hard. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for the show this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as we always do at this time, I'm going to pitch you once more on subscribing to Slate Plus. You'll get full access behind the paywall, bonus episodes, extra segments, a delightful newsletter, and more. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today.
0: It really is a delightful newsletter. I think that's a perk that is just not mentioned enough. It's a great, great newsletter. Thanks to this week's guest, Jessamine West, and to our stupendous producer, Cameron Drews, who will be hosting next week's show. Make sure to tune in for his conversation with Alex Sujong Laughlin, producer of the Normal Gossip podcast. Until then, get back to work.